It's October 25th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. And let's start out with Ukraine war contracting. Lawmakers seek emergency powers from Defense News. Uh, the amendment here offers multi-year contracting authorities typically reserved for Navy vessels and major aircraft um, and will allow these to be used for certain munitions. And some of that includes potentially waiving some regulations, including certified cost or pricing data, uh, which uh, kind of guarantees certain you know, profit rates on sole source negotiated contracts. And one of the interesting things here, for me at least, was just the obligation rate of some of these Ukraine um, fundings that have been provided by Congress. So of $6 billion Congress appropriated to buy equipment for Ukraine, DOD has only awarded $1.2 billion or about $12.5 billion appropriated to replace U.S. stockpiles for weapons. Only $1.5 out of that $12.5 has been awarded. So, yeah, obligation rates aren't exactly the fastest thing ever, so some kinds of acceleration are needed. I don't know if there's um, how many laws need to change to make those happen as opposed to just, like, stepping on it, but it seemed like, you know, we're hearing a lot of, you know, stories coming back of people accelerating Seems like in aggregate, though, the overall flow hasn't been uh, so stellar. Well, yeah, I mean, this this is kind of a uh, indicative of what we've done in the past too, right? With the uh, Iraq uh, Iraq Afghanistan war, where we realized, yeah, yeah, we need to ramp up, you know, in these areas, and we try to do it like in the year of, right? And and definitely, what's going on with Ukraine is we didn't predict it, and we didn't have the capacity built into the into the defense industrial base. Uh, we didn't have the contracts for that, for that, you know, level of demand. And so, you know, this is a big catch up game. And I, I just think, uh, you know, especially with some of these weapons, right. Some of these complex weapons, even, even the high Mars, uh, you know, they're fairly complex and, and it's not easy to just ramp up that production line or ramp up the, you know, the number of chips you have to buy the, uh, you know, forgings and, and whatever the, whatever goes into that weapon uh, is complex. And so this, I think, goes to some of the other things we'll talk about where we really need to get ahead of the game and, and not do this reactive thing. And Ukraine's a good uh, a good warning for, for how we, uh, we... We don't need to do this with China when we have the China fight. So, um, yeah, thanks, Ukraine, for giving us, uh, you know, showing us, showing us how, how unprepared we were. <laughs> I wonder, you know, how much was done under undefinitized contract actions, right? Like, oh. is industry moving? Like, they know where these, you know, $6 billion and $12.5 billion, they basically know where it needs to go, and people are getting started. They're just, like, hammering out the terms of the negotiation. Or is it literally, like, you know, no one's moving. It's all in, like, proposal mode. Everyone's just doing compliance stuff. And, like, the supply chain isn't really, like, getting started because the money hasn't been flowing yet. Right. I think those are like two different scenarios. Not really clear which one we're in. I would imagine with something like uh, like this, with all the emergency, you know, sort of, uh, you know, presidential attention, there probably are a lot of UCAS, um, you know, or, or, you know, trying to, uh, you know, sole source extensions to contracts to have more capacity. I'm sure they're they're using all of those authorities. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, these, these supply chains are deep, right? Like it's it's not uh it's not just ramping up in one area. You, you, you have to go through the entire kind of bill of materials. And that can be a lot of small companies. Like we found that uh, in just some of the supply chain assessments we've done where, you know, some of it hinges on one or two small suppliers that provide a really key component. 
and they just don't have the staff. They don't have the buildings. They don't have, you know, um, you, you know, all the things that they would need to kind of ramp up. So I think it probably is less contractual, might be some of that, but I, th- I think it's more of the supply chain is just not uh, resilient enough to say, oh, you need me to go from making 10 of these to 50 of these, you know, next month. Like I, I you know, I just can't do that. Right. Yeah. But I feel like if the money was there, these people would move, like just get the money out for the long lead items while you hammer out maybe the all up round. Right. Um, and figure, figure out the rest of that. But, you know, if I'm, I'll jump a little bit further down the line here. One of the other stories was acquisition revamp needed to meet demand surges, defense industry says. And one of the Raytheon executives here talking about munitions says, you know, quote, we need insight into the demand. And once we understand the insight into demand and we understand the willingness of the government to pay for additional capacity, then that helps us go out and plan what it will take for actually increased production. So I don't know. And again, like Raytheon is, you know, much further downstream rather than upstream, like towards the suppliers. But it doesn't seem like those investments are being made because they just don't know where the demand signal is. And, you know, okay, we've had all these billions of dollars appropriated and supplementals for this and all that. um, But they don't really see it in the fit up. I I guess it's not getting on contract. Maybe it is, maybe it's not or how that's working out. But um, the fact that they're just saying like, hey, let us go plan for this production increase, but we need insight into your demand. There's kind of like a breakdown in in the order of operations, I guess, from their perspective, because they're not willing to take the risk and just go increase capacity out of their own pocket. It seems. No, I think, and I think DoD, you, you were. I mean, I think, I think they, I think that's exactly what the industry needs, uh, and they need to have trust in it too. And I think that's part of it. Is is like we. We've gotten really bad with, you know, munitions is one example, but I'm sure there's a lot of other examples, you know, be it radios or whatever, where you have a contract that has a, you know, you'll have like B tables in it that will have a range of, you know, I'm going to buy 50 a year to, you know, 400 a year. Well, you know, they have to have really strong indicators that that 400 a year is likely because to plan for that requires a lot of investments and, and outlays and, and, and things that, you know, people they need to hire and all that stuff. And if the min sustainment rate, so min sustainment rate is something that the Pentagon tracks pretty closely because it means like, that's the, that's the bottom, that's the basement that I can go with my budget planning and still be viable. What they consider them, you know, the, the, they consider that program to be viable. So there's min sustainment rate, which might be 50, but it might have a ramp up to 400. But we really need to kind of, you know, let industry know that, no, actually, we're going to be buying close to the 400 so they can make sure they have all of that in place. Um, but if, we are, if we're regularly just buying at the min sustainment rate or just slightly above it, uh, you know, then industry doesn't feel confident to make those uh, investments. So, yeah, it's definitely, you know, there's definitely some work to be done there. But I guess the point I was trying to make was that there's obviously some kind of global demand, right? Um, Are they willing to take risk ahead of the literal funding being there uh, to get that, you know, make sure that they can collapse those timelines and, and, and be able to service it on time. Now I agree that the primes are not incentivized to do that, right? They're not incentivized to take their own risk and then how do they kind of like recoup that, you know, they, they lose it if they're wrong or they, what happens. So um, it's, it's easier to kind of just say government, you tell us your demand and then we will 
buy that. You know, we will do exactly what you say, but you have to line it up first because, you know, what are, when are we going to wait for? FY24, 25, you know, and and then it's being it's kind of late for the Davidson window. Well, this is where FMS is actually really helpful. If you have a if you have a munition like JDAM uh, that can be exported, which you know uh, we we sold a lot of those to Saudis and then Qataris and stuff. If 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 you have another customer, it it is very helpful for industry because you know maybe right now the the demand is big enough that that some of these companies are actually making investments. Uh, and clearly they're, you know, they're getting money thrown at them. So they probably, they probably are starting to get those long lead items, but, but long-term, I don't think they really trust this system either. Like after Ukraine goes down, you know, is the Pentagon going to keep this level of demand? Uh, are they going to, you know, continue buying at this level, but they're going to drop back down again, like they always do. And so I do think, uh, having more FMS, I love the partnership ideas with, uh, you know, with Europe. So, so that way they can say, okay, well, if I can sell this to uh, to Germany and Switzerland and all these people who are buying F-35s and they, they this missile is already integrated on that, that gives them a much better, you know, much higher confidence. But yeah, I, I think it's going to take time to build up trust so that DOD will actually maintain these levels. We just don't have the history there. But again, like the requirement, whether or not it went through JSIDs or not, like, the requirement seems clear. We, the United States, needs a much higher stockpile of one five five millimeter shells. You know, the CSIS study was saying, "Hey, we need like at least two thousand LRASMs, not the four hundred you plan through the fit up." You know, it's just like you can kind of go down the list, and you like, you know, regardless of whatever happens in Ukraine, you're just going to kind of need to have that to have a credible deterrent, right? If you don't have the weapons, then you're going to run out within the first couple of weeks and then where are you? So I don't know. It, it just seems like it's, it's kind of hard to argue against that kind of readiness for a mobilization because that's the whole point of the military point of view. I, the one positive thing I think is Congress is actually really engaged on this. So within the department, you know, this is not news, right? Uh, you know, these, these weapon discussions happen every year. There's, they know, like everybody knows that they should have more. Um, there's that's that's been known for ten years. Like, oh yeah, we just don't have enough munitions. But they get into conversations where the budget process starts, and you you plug in all your MDAP programs, and you plug in all the other high priority R and D efforts, and um, you know all the things that are all the O and M, all the must pay bills, and all the readiness and uh, personnel. And all of a sudden, you're kind of out of money, and you only have so many things you can adjust, right? So you can't just fire everybody right away. That takes time. You can't downgrade infrastructure because that takes prac. So you kind of only have so many levers and levers, uh, things that are adjustable uh, procurement quantities like munitions are, are an easy uh, radio button to go. Eh, we wanted to buy 5X, but maybe we're just buy 3X because that's all we can really afford. So, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things where like everybody kind of knows and, and it's but that happens. But I think the fact that Congress now seems like it probably will not allow that to continue to happen. I think they're going to get a force a, a certain level of ammunition procurement. That that that's maybe a positive sign that DoD will have to maintain that at least for the foreseeable future because because the the recognition has finally set in. Yeah, and I hope that's true. I mean, I think in our little budget data set that we pulled for munitions we saw like fy18 there was a big bump up everyone was uh kind of all for munitions but other than that it was pretty steadily like a bill payer right so um yeah hopefully we'll turn the corner on that i don't 
again, you bring up the right point. There are trade-offs. Like if you're saying this is important, then what is not important? And I don't know what that is. I think a lot of people would disagree with me, but maybe it's just like developments of the 2030 stuff. Um, just pull enough so you get five billion out of it or something <laughs> like that. I don't, I don't know what to say about that, but I'm just like I don't think that stuff is going to be as decisive. And even if it was, I or like how do you even know? It's so far off, right? Like, is NGAD really going to be like decisive in the 2030s? Who knows? A lot of things are going to happen between now and then. Take care of our risks, you know, that that are in front of our faces. Yep. Oh, totally agree. Um, that might that not be might be a popular view, or even with my own self, you know, like I could debate myself. Anyway, let's turn over to uh, John Ferrari, former lieutenant general in the army, now at AEI. He's had a couple good articles out talking about this munition stuff. Uh, one in the Hill, one in Military Times. And I'll just run down some of the stuff he's he's uh, recommending here. Uh, doing committing to five year block buys of these munitions stopping the use of IDIQ contracts for the munitions sector to provide that kind of long-term consistency and, and risk reduction there for at least for the planning purposes of the industry. Uh, reform how the Pentagon operates munitions production facilities, uh, always having multiple sources. So do not contract to a monopoly, have multiple sources. Uh, finally, most important step is create a realistic stockpile requirement. And so I think that's right what I was kind of talking about, right? Like the requirement has to be there. Like we just got to stockpile some of the stuff that we know that we need. Um, so, so yeah, John Ferrari on that front. And then the other one was mostly we need to realign, get more procurement. We got too much RDT and E going on relative to historical levels. So in the past you had $2.5 for every $1 of RDT and E going into procurement. So two and a half times as much procurement as rdt and Now they're almost even, basically. So if we want to get stuff into scale, like out into the field, got to start, you know, relying on that procurement more, which I thought was a good and interesting point. What's your reactions? Well, I mean, I think some of that R&D is a little bit inflated because we have some very big programs going on. Um, programs that I that I hope will, I don't know, be scaled back a little bit. But um, yeah, we have all the NGADs, the two NGADs and DDG and you know, just, you got you got some big things in the pipeline there, so probably skews it a little bit. Um, there's not nearly enough munition programs that are starting. It's like a, I think JADM is one. Uh, there's a new yeah modular. I think, I think we might talk about that a new modular thing. But yeah, for for my uh, from my point of view, I wish we had a lot more munition uh, R and D programs going on. Ones that were developing uh, more simplistic. Uh, weapons. I think one of the problems that I have with John's recommendations, where I don't, I don't fundamentally disagree, um, although on the operating munition production facilities, I'm not sure. It's a little bit hard to see the exact value there because they're GoCo facilities. So I'm not sure that paying the overhead directly saves a lot of a lot of money there because GoCo is pretty, GoCo is managed pretty tightly. But anyway, apart from that one, the uh, the monopoly one. The problem with the monopoly one is that. We can't really have more than one contractor because these missiles and, and, and bombs that we develop, not the bombs themselves, but the, uh, uh, you know, like the LRASM and JASMs and AMRAMs, they're so complex. I mean, they're all they're all SAPT programs with, with really uh, some really high tech stuff in there. They demand the like highest end electronics. They're uh, very complicated to build. And so one of the challenges we have is that 
everything we buy is a very high-end munition, uh, except for JDAMs, which don't have the range in the Pacific Theater, really. Um, so that's one thing. We really do need to have more options uh, with, you know, not everything needs a multi-mode seeker. Not everything needs to be able to, uh, uh, you know, take out, uh, you know, you know 5,000 square foot building. So, you know, it's just like... We just need more specialized, I think, munitions. So I would actually like to see more R&D go into that so that we can we can have multiple vendors because it's simplistic enough um, and we can use it in, you know, use it on mass and get the, get the mass that we need that we can produce it easier. So I don't know. That's one of the things I, I set up. On the realistic stockpile requirement, absolutely. The, you know, I think the uh, RAND did a study even just a couple of years ago and they found that uh, just to take out some of the key airfields in the in, in the Taiwan theater, uh, we would go through more than half of our JASMs. So, and that would just be to deny the Chinese Air um, Air Force uh, runways for a period of time, like a short period of time. So, you know, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of munitions to go through for kind of a fairly limited effect. <laughs> so, yeah, no doubt there that needs to be improved. All right, so we'll move on to JADC2 spending is sprawling. DOD should keep watch, but let it go from breaking defense. And this is uh, Travis Sharp here at CSBA, which I think he has a pretty interesting point of view here, which you don't tend to hear so much. Uh, But he first actually started tracking a bunch of initiatives. um, And he's tracking 30 JADC2 initiatives, which together uh, are somewhere between $2.2 and $2.6 billion. I'd like to see the breakdown of that. Uh, but he was saying that it was actually growing quite steadily, about $600 million a year over the last two years. Um, and But his real point here is that, okay, it's kind of like everywhere, uh, but you, senior Pentagon officials should let JADC2 go for a while and see what our enterprising specialists come up with. And he kind of harkens back to some things like from Harvey Sapolsky about military innovation and, you know, fear of centralization and jointness because it leads to monopolization and cartelization and stagnation and all this kind of Asians, I guess. So that was an interesting uh, point of view. And I tend to be sympathetic to it as well, especially since JADC2 is the thing that kind of cross cuts, right? Regular military programs, it co- cross cuts appropriations, it cross cuts services. So it's really hard to just kind of put it into a box as some people might want to and just say, here's one program office, go do it. Uh, maybe that's not the right path, but who knows? Do you know? <laughs> what's, what's your view? Yeah. Um, I mean, the blog that I wrote that uh, a few people read was was about this. And, and the, the point that I made was I, I do think a program office is needed, but more of a integration program office that that tracks the initiatives in terms of how they all roadmap together to provide the collective capabilities. And that's that I think is one of the challenges with JADC2. It's not so much that good things are not happening. There's no doubt, uh, you know, the, the Navy's doing good things. Project Convergence, you know, uh, is, 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 uh, is, is giving a lot of insight into, into challenges and, you know, different commercial solutions. So, you know, there's good things happening. Are the right things happening that come together to provide that joint uh, capability, that I think is is sort of what's being challenged with the way that we're, the approach that we're using. So a program office that at least tracked 
the different efforts and said, okay, these things are, you know, these collective capabilities will allow us to get radar data, uh, you know, from these disparate sensors, uh, you know, bring, bring that together for decision support to the Army, Air Force, and Navy, because all that data is useful to multiple services. Um, so make sure you have the pipelines to, to those platforms that need to, you know, target something and, and launch, a, launch a weapon. So, yeah, so I think that, I think there still is a coordination function that's needed, but I, I definitely agree that you need that innovation, that bottom-up innovation. Uh, I just think you need a little bit of top-down coordination. Uh, so that, that might be the one thing we're still missing. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I don't know if it's a program office that necessarily needs to do it or whether, because I tend to see this as mostly like an analytical program analysis back office staff thing, right? Like you just have someone that's out there that's kind of documenting and curating the data and bringing that to the decision makers and the program offices themselves and just like, here's what we know about you. Here's what other people are doing. We should have regular forums and, and other things for everyone to talk. And, you know, someone in OSD should be able to own that and just be like, look, these are the gaps or, you know, this is what we're missing. Someone shall go, someone will go do this, right? Like, and just make that call um, and realign resources or however you want to go do it. So that's kind of my vision. I don't know if it needs to be a program office, though you could align that into a program office. I use the program office term. I probably should have just called it like a enterprise architect, honestly, is, is really what you need, which is, it is what the CFT is trying to do. But I think you almost need like a Preston Dunlap. And that's why Preston was separate from the RCO effort. And I, I actually liked that model where you had the, the architect uh, was separate, but, you know, kind of working to integrate uh, the, the pieces together while you allow the different program offices to actually execute. So, so yeah, I probably shouldn't have called it a program office. Maybe should have called it an architect. That, that, that I think is, is really what's needed just to understand, okay, are all these pieces collectively coming together to provide XX? Uh, are they working together? So there's a lot of technology pieces there that need to be understood. So I get your point on the staff, an the, the an analysis piece. You would just need those people to kind of be, you know, soaked, Soaked in the, uh, you know, in the comm broker, you know, data exchange, you know, all that kind of stuff that uh, JADC2 uh, plays around with. You need to understand that technology. So Pete Modigliani, our mutual friend, had a nice little blog post. DOD needs a pilot shortage. And no, he doesn't mean like fighter pilot shortage. He means we have too many pilot programs in DOD. Congress often says, hey, Let's go try something out. Let's go make a pilot program. Let's go try these special authorities. And what I think he's saying here is, you know, when you have these pilots, the whole point of a pilot is that you measure the impact and you have to like, you know, control, have controls and measure your independent variables and see how the pilot worked or did not work. Uh, but in most of these cases in acquisition in general, there's just so many factors affecting outcomes I guess you get the confounding effect, right? You can never isolate a variable and measure its impact in, in these types of situations. And so he was just kind of saying, hey, let's let's pump the brakes on, on pilots and maybe it's just you have to figure out those enterprise-wide changes, right? I think you, more of like the MTA type approach, the military, how that kind of, you know, here's just the, here's just the path, go do it. 
Right. Yeah. And I may have inspired Pete a little bit because I'm always complaining about the, the challenges with a couple of pilots that we have to, <laughs> we have to run. And so I, I don't know. I, I beat this into like budget activity, budget activity, aid, consumption based uh, services. I, it, 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 Who's running consumption based services? No, that's us. But, you know, it, it's very. No, but I mean, like, is someone actually using it? Because I know GSA was, like, standing up a little group to figure out how they use it. But I didn't know if anyone was actually using that authority. Um, yeah. No, there there are. there. Are, I mean, it's, it's the authority is very minimal. So, uh, but, yeah, we do. There are some pilots that are chosen. They're, they're not. Uh, they weren't executing fast enough for us to get data. Uh, so we're, we're pivoting a little bit. But, but yeah. So, anyway, though, Pete, Pete's totally right. I mean, there part of it too is the volume if you look at the ndas now they're just so packed full of, of so many different things you know piloting innovative this and new contracting and you know what's the impact if we don't have cost and pricing you know there's there's all these different uh different pilots now and it's sort of like um there's so many so many so many going at once and we're trying to find programs who want to do it and programs don't always want to be the kind of the guinea pig they want to be uh you know they want to be left alone to do their do their challenging job they have and then they're like here you're going to be our new pilot for this and they're like great what do i have to give you so you know at some point uh we're just sort of like just flooding the zone with with, with these things and and to pete's point we can't always give the data that's asked for we want to you know they, they want to see these very quantitative impacts and sometimes it's very hard to say well yeah without this we would only be able to do, you know, two things a year, but with it, we can deliver, you know, four months ahead of schedule. And it's just really hard given all the variables that go into any kind of technology effort uh, and, and bureaucratic program. It's hard to sort of say that, yeah, this one authority gave me, you know, that impact. So yeah, it's very challenging. I think uh, I would, I would rather see, and, and I think Pete hit on this was uh, if you think this is a good idea, Let's implement it. Give it five years. Um, and if for some reason it seems like it's not working or it's causing, you know, opposite effect or whatever, uh, then rescind it, you know. But if it's a good idea, let's do it. Uh, we don't always have to pilot everything. So, Yeah, I was, by the way, as you were talking about with the NDAA, I've been like tracking the page lengths. Uh, started between one and 10 pages. By the 80s, it was 100 pages. In the 90s, it broke 500. Um, 2020 was the first time it broke 1,000. Last year, it was over 2,000 pages in length. And just the Section 800, which is like the acquisition provisions, is over 150 pages in length. So, yeah, um, lots of good stuff there. (laughs) (laughs) Lots to read, right? Nice. Put you to sleep. Yeah. I think we need to, like, maybe once every three years we do an acquisition NDAA, like, give three years to, like, let the system settle down. <laughs> That's actually a good point, right? Because, I, but I feel like, you know, there's always so many things like, oh, we're trying to get that in this NDA. And then there's just, like, this backlog of things that are, you know, year after year, like, either it makes it in or it doesn't. There's so many good ideas. I know, I know. And they're so well-intentioned too. So, I mean, I, I, I don't beat up the hill for, for a lot of it because they're trying to help. Uh, but yeah, sometimes sometimes the help is too much. <laughs> Next story we have is Lockheed Martin beats estimates on F-35 sales, maintains guidance. The company maintains its 2022 20, revenue guidance of $65.25 billion despite lingering supply chain issues and headwinds 
Um, one of the interesting parts here is that their CFO said, in spite of sales and margins pressure, we believe that we could still deliver on the same absolute free cash flow that we talked about last year, 6.1 billion. So it's, you know, we've been talking about some of this inflation problem, right? Affecting industry, higher costs, um, but they've signed fixed price contracts. But ultimately, like until you hear some kinds of, you know, pain in the financial statements, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about relief, right? And I think the, the Pentagon has been pretty hard on, on turning, you know, making any kind of global settlements or anything like that with respect to um, changes to the contract for requests for equitable adjustments or otherwise to account for inflation. So again, a lot of free cash flow. Are they putting it back into what? What are they putting it back into? That's a good question. Well, I think in the draft NDA there is some language that would allow for some relief, but I mean, I think that the. Uh, you know, I think uh, the you know Senator Warren and and folks like that, you know, are are setting a very very high bar, and so I think this definitely dilutes the uh, discussion in terms of yeah how needed how needed is that uh, is, is is are those are those funds? Um, so I, I think this probably hurts Lockheed's uh, chances of of getting real relief if if they were impacted on things like F thirty five and stuff where uh, COVID you know, COVID hit the bottom line. So yeah, it, it, you're right. This is, this is going to make it that harder. Yeah. I guess it's, it, it feels like it's almost like when did they negotiate specific contracts with the government or lock in the pricing? And when did they do it with their suppliers? Cause if that was all in lockstep, then they might be a little bit more protected and maybe some of the issues might be further down the supplier tiers. But if there's like some kind of lag, they didn't have every, you know, supplier quote in or whatever it is. Um, and then those things like balloon, then maybe Lockheed in a year or two or three or however long um, some of these multi-year contracts, maybe they get into some kind of trouble later on. I don't know. I, I, I wonder, like, is there a lagged effect? How, how would I know? Um, I don't know. No, that's a good point, actually. Um, you know, I think the big primes are very good at having really strong contracts with their subs. Um and they enforce them pretty rigorously. So, yeah, is maybe the pain is being felt further down the supply chain. And while Lockheed's still hitting their numbers, you know, Lockheed's and Northrop's uh, suppliers down the line are taking cuts and having to, you know, really kind of scrape the scrape the bottom of the barrel to kind of keep afloat. So, yeah, you're right. We may not really know the full impacts until until later if some of those companies go out of business or something. Yeah, I I mean. I'm really wondering if that is because were that discrepancy between like when you locked in the price and when the inflation became kind of known, right? I would expect that to be a bigger lag or like have been less done lower in the supplier tiers. And if they're the one, like if those are the weakest links and those are the ones that are likeliest to kind of falter because of this, then we get like a double whammy in the supply chain, not just like the COVID and everything else going on, but um, and glo global disruptions, but you know this on top of it. Right. No, I think I think you're right. Uh, Collins, I believe that's Susan Collins, set to be top GOP spot on defense appropriations panel, and she is a longtime Republican, um, and she comes from, of course, uh, Maine and General Dynamics Bath Ironworks is kind of one of the big. Uh, the big institutions there and industries there. 
Um, and so one of the, the aspects of this article was saying, okay, she's the top Republican for the full committee, but also defense panel, uh, Susan Collins. And she is replacing uh, Sh- Richard Shelby from Alabama, who is retiring after this year. Um, and then they kind of railed off some of the other folks who are also so some of basically the idea was a lot of the big players and decision makers on these committees are kind of from, uh, you know, shipbuilding areas <laughs> and, and that could play well, at least for shipbuilding in in plus ups and appropriations. Yeah, almost exclusively shipbuilding areas, it should be noted. So it's not even like, uh, you know, if you're if you're a, a Congress person or a senator from Texas, you know, you have multiple, you know, multiple industries potentially in your state. But yeah, for, for Susan Collins, this is, you know, the, the uh, Portsmouth Naval Yard is, is like, you know, the the defense uh, employer. So, uh, yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, we're definitely going to see money go to ships. Yeah. Okay. And, and they've had a lot of problems with uh, kind of like their union and workforce and COVID times. And uh, we'll see how all that's kind of shaken out there at Bath Ironworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's an interesting one. Boston Dynamics and five other co- robot makers pledge not to weaponize their robots. And so these other ones are Agility Robots, Anybotics, ClearPath Robotics, Open Robotics, and Unitree. Uh, Boston Dynamics is the only one of those I had ever heard of. Uh, but still, you know, it's kind of concerning that they say they will never weapon or they pledge not to weaponize the robots. But then they feel like they're kind of flip-flopping because they say, however, the firms were clear that they did not take issue with existing technologies that nations and their government agencies use to defend themselves and uphold their laws. So I don't know. At some point, you know, it's probably nice to say that now, but maybe they have to make a decision. Uh, Well, I think, you know, I I think DOD needs to get more clear too about how they plan to use robotics. I think some of the some of the uh, documents that have come out on AI, responsible AI, ethical AI, you know, is really trying to get after this point that you know we we don't want to use robotics against you know um, you know we're not trying to take out cities, right? We're not trying to take out civilian populations. Um, we're trying to you know defend uh, against military targets. So so yeah, I think I think DoD should be clear about that because. We want to attract these very smart people that that do have issues, ethical issues, with um, you know their work being turned into some weapon that you know we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. It was not a very those were not clean wars, um, and a lot of civilians were hurt. And so I, I do I do get their concern, uh, and I think I think DoD probably you know needs to kind of come out with some policy on on how robotics will be used, um, and it will be used you know against military forces um, to to defend our interests and to defend, uh, you know, other countries that are, that are being violated. So. Yeah. But I, I mean, it feels like every technology sector feels like there's something special, you know, it's like, Oh, we're AI. So we're special. (laughs) Oh, we're robotics. So we're special. Oh, well we make satellite imagery. We can like really shape wars, but I pledge not to, you know, like, Oh, like think about quantum too, right? Like the first people, if Google gets to quantum and they're like, we will not allow the the United States military to use this to decrypt Chinese ciphers or whatever it is, you know, it's like, that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous, but I, you know, and I don't understand it because I don't think those people fully understand the impact of, you know, the world order being changed and how that would impact. Someone's going to take your technology and do it anyway. Yeah, like... 
you know, that technology is being used. The, the countries that we are we have issue with are the countries that are already using a lot of these things in very nefarious ways. So so that's what we are trying to pro- trying to protect, you know, uh, the, the world from having to deal with that uh, at scale, you know. And, and, and so they should be part of the solution. But the bottom line is they have their opinions and that's a whole generation of, of folks that we do need uh, to be helping us. And so I, I think we can, I think there's a middle ground where we can say, here's our, here's our principles, here's our philosophy for how we deploy these, um, you know, but also be realistic. Then, you know, there are times where we need to, to use robotic technology to, uh, to defend ourselves. So. Yeah, I guess like here would be my analogy. It would be like, you know, an agent China or something. You have a company and they, they develop fireworks and they're like, I will not allow my fireworks to be used to be militarized for something like a cannon, right? But someone's going to like, all right, well, now someone can figure out how to build a cannon. But if you don't participate in that to some degree and figure out what that means, then you would never have been able to build ramparts that can withstand certain types of rounds, right? So you don't get this kind of back and forth and you're kind of stymieing yourself from that learning because, you know, with more mass dis- weapons of mass destruction that can come from any kind of general purpose technological advance, there will also be kind of counters to that as well or other safe things. So I don't know. I'm just rambling here. No, I get you. It's not an easy, not an easy thing to deal with. But, you know, unfortunately, I do have people who are not, don't fully understand the real implications yet. Maybe that will change in the near future. Yeah. A U.S.-led drone fleet starting to come together in the Middle East. And that's, of course, Task Force 59. And they are proposing a fleet of 100 unmanned craft in the Middle East um, coming together from currently what they have is uh, 20 surface drones from that they are bringing and they're adding that every month. And then two other countries are going to start chipping in altogether. They want to get to a hundred surface drones, um, mostly of two types. So you got the long duration, uh, sail drone, which does a lot of ISR. And then you'll also have the devil ray, um, which actually is for ISR as well, but that's more of like the fast reaction. Whereas the sail drones are the smaller, guys that are out there doing kind of persistent ISR. And the Devil Ray was actually pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if you yeah, saw the yeah, video. Yeah. The, 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 they could go like 100 uh, knots, and they have all sorts of, like, sensors and integration of, like, EW capabilities on them. So I was actually pretty stoked. I was like, man, I didn't really hear about this thing, but it's it's really cool. Yeah, they're almost like, uh, I, I kind of thought of them like a PT boat, if you remember PT boats from World War II. Uh, you know, where they, they actually had the PT boats had a couple torpedoes on them. So they, they actually could, uh, uh, they could take out some ships. And I was kind of thinking, you know, yeah, it's good for EW and some ISR, but you know, you probably could, probably could use them as a weapon if you needed to. So, uh, yeah, it might be, might have some applicability beyond ISR, but yeah, ISR clearly makes, makes sense as the first use case. Yeah, I think. I was listening to some podcast, I forget which one it was, but they had a commander from Task Force 59 and he was kind of saying that like the devil ray will be the fast reaction thing where it's like you go in and see what's going on and you don't have to risk like a a human ship. But yeah, if you could put some kind of, I mean, it's going to need to be able to defend itself potentially too. Maybe its speed is its own survivability, uh, right? 
but it just seems like that thing seemed relatively mature. And I don't, I just from my noviceness, I don't see a reason not to start, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe allowing it to have some physical countermeasures, some kinetic effects. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I, I think uh, I think ISR will be the first domain of autonomy, unfortunately, just because it's not uh, it doesn't require the level of trust for for it to, to for it to have uh, munitions on it, um, you know, and, and all the things that go with that. But, um, but so yeah, so I think uh, I think this makes sense for let's experiment, uh, show how we can do command and control, how we can sort of manage these resources. You know, can we do swarms? Who controls it? What ships? How does that conops work? Figure that all out, and then you know, then the step of adding uh, some type of counter um, or offensive capability um, is going to be a lot easier. You know, if we have all that figured out. Starlink's market dominance affecting DoD's hybrid network plans, and so here's just some discussion of basically Starlink is dominant in the market. Is one of the uh, officials from U.S. Space Force was saying. And they have their own proprietary interfaces um, and they don't necessarily are, they might not play with the architecture that the uh, Space Force is looking for. And so that's kind of concerning to them. Um, what, what, do you, what do you kind of take away from this one? Because it seems like they're just kind of so far ahead, but the Space Force is trying to team with like Kuiper and Amazon and, and others as well. So um, they got their own thing going with SDA and their own optical links. Uh, so what, what's your view of this state? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it, right? This is, you know, it's going to be a proprietary solution. And so you're going to have to live within that bound within those boundaries. Um, and there's some things you're not going to be able to change. Um, so I get that, you know, Space Force is really putting a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, having an integrated architecture that allows anything, um, any new things that are launched to kind of be able to play together and both from a, you know, a ground station and data transfer and, and all those kind of things. So that's, that's, that's a big, that's a big part of, uh, you know, the whole unified data library and, and their contributions to JADC2. So, so yeah, this is probably suboptimal, um, but they're, you know, they're probably not going to have until they can, they have a competitor or until they have some of their own, uh, you know, SDA type assets up there, they're probably going to have to rely on, uh, on this. So they're just going to have to make it work and it probably will be clunky, but let's face it, the, the right now, the whole, the whole ground service architecture, um, and the, and the space architecture, right. We don't even, we don't even have uh, laser crosslinks on most of our satellites. So right now we're not in good shape anyway. So this is the least of, least of the space forces, larger concerns, but I think they just would rather it, you know, conform to their vision uh, rather than immediately have this disconnect. So, yeah, it's probably how it will play out. Well, Starlink's got 3,400 satellites in orbit already, which is incredible. And they already have approval for 12,000. And uh, it seemed like you said it was like clunky, but it seemed like um, it's been used not only in Ukraine, right? But and they're experimenting. There was like a $1.9 million um, U.S. contract for the Air Force. But one of the things here that they're saying was that it was used by NATO forces in an allied exercise off the coast of Portugal. Um, approximately 120 unmanned aircraft vessels and underwater vehicles were able to integrate into a common network, I suppose, using Starlink to communicate. So that's kind of impressive, right? 
Yeah, I mean, some of that may have been glued together, you know, for purposes of that experiment. Um, and that's probably probably what informed kind of their consternation was it, it probably took some heroics from you know smart people to kind of make that happen. Um, it wasn't as uh, wasn't as seamless as they wanted it to be. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have all the details on this. So, um, you know, it, it is it is clear that they're concerned about it. And I guess the question will be is how they can sort of, you know, use it as a stopgap until they have, the, you know, uh, other options. Yeah. They may not have other options for a while. I wonder, you know, I love what Derek Tornier is doing over at SDA, but if you just said, screw it, we're just going to go all in on Starlink, how much could you kill from the budget, <laughs> right, <laughs> of, of what they're currently working on? That's a good question. Uh, and this is this is what we've been, you know, kind of harping on the Space Force about, right, is that there there are, are all kinds of commercial capabilities and and we seem to recreate things that we can buy. Um, and that's true on the SDA side, on the, the ground imaging side, you know, we continue to buy satellites for, you know, you know with, with more capability in some cases, but in some cases not. Right. So, yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I, I'd be curious to hear what Derek said about that. I'm sure they'd say that some of it's protected comms and different things that, you know, have to go through the transport layer for missile defense. And there's certain timelines that have to be met for national security. And, uh, you know, there probably are some of that, that, that drives that, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of it probably could go through Starlink. Uh, there's a bunch of other consternation on uh, Elon Musk basically saying that he wanted the U S or Ukraine, but mostly the U S to start paying for the Ukraine service he was, I guess he's operating $20 million loss every month to service uh, Ukraine uh, connectivity through Starlink. And he's not going to send any more terminals, but he's going to continue, I guess, the service. Um, but, you know, the weird thing here was that I guess he offered some kind of, uh, you know, diplomacy, some kind of tr- some kind of like deal that could be made out between Russia and Ukraine. And it was very poorly received because it was not kind of like maximalist in in um, ejecting Russia. And so a lot of con- like he got blowed back. And so he's like, screw it. I'm, I'm going to not fund it anymore. And now a lot of people are pretty pissed off. They're like, oh, this rich billionaire, he is, uh, you know, flexing his own, you know, power and muscle in places that he doesn't really know anything about. And now he's like holding hostage um, Ukraine and, and America. And so can we really trust this guy with launch, with other types of things? Um, again, with what we were just talking about, the market dominance, what's, what's your reaction to all that? Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't like the attack on him because, you know, I, he, he stepped forward and provided a, a key capability that no one else was doing, you know, so, um, and by all accounts, you know, it did cost uh, uh, SpaceX, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to provide that service for free. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at all the money that's kind of going into the Ukraine budget, uh, or Ukraine support budget, you know, including from Europe and, and in the U.S., uh, you know, why can't we reimburse him for some of that? He's not a wartime, uh, he has no wartime responsibility. So, so I know I, I was a little bit annoyed by the criticism. Uh, at the same time, I think he should stay out of the statecraft aspect of trying to negotiate, uh, you know, security terms and things like that. That's, you know, not in his ballywick, but I think it was very fair for him to 
kind of say, yeah, you know, why can't I get reimbursed? I see that we just passed $60 billion and I'm providing a, a crucial capability, you know? So. Yeah. I, that was basically my reaction as well. Like no one's asking the primes to build a high Mars for free or a stinger for free. Yeah. Right. And, and the funny thing here is also that SpaceX actually took risk ahead of the demand, ahead of the military requirement. And he already had it freaking ready, right? And no one's paying him for the value of that timeliness and that capability that wasn't asked for um, and that isn't really being compensated for. So, so yeah, I mean, if you really want people to kind of have these capabilities, and that could be a huge benefit to the United States national security if we have, you know, private actors who have significant capabilities that raise the options for military commanders, right? Um, we want them to be able to bring those to bear. We don't want them to take the, you know, I guess the uh, the Boston dynamic stance that we aren't going to weaponize these because SpaceX is actually taking a risk mm-hmm. by, right? And they had to repel those EW yeah. attacks and who knows what other types of uh, uh, issues they could have run into. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much with you. But um, one of my things is also like, well, if you're really that worried about Elon Musk, you can always, you know, commandeer the the private property if it's a real national security emergency, right? So, and most of his stuff is in America, so that wouldn't be too hard. And that's an illiberal thing to do. So that's kind of a thing of last resort, but you should kind of play it as a last resort thing too. Yeah, I mean, the consequences of that would be pretty profound, you know, in terms of you know, he probably would not continue to invest if that happened. So you do, you do, you, you will lose, uh, you will lose something, but yeah, I guess that, I guess that's an option. Yeah. Uh, the switchblade kamikaze drone production to ramp up following Ukraine use and aero environment, of course, is the producer of them and they can produce more than 2000 switchblade 600. So that's actually the larger, mm-hmm. right? The, the 300 is the smaller one for like anti-personnel 600 for anti-armor and so I'm actually pretty surprised um, as 2,000 systems, but it's annually, right? Um, and so these things aren't exactly the most simple things. And they're actually quite, I think they're about $200,000 each, something like that. Um, but he said he could roughly triple that amount to 6,000 um, if they make that capital investment. And he also mentioned, by the way, they're only doing one shift. So uh, they they could probably wrap that up anyway. Yeah. So I think era environment, I, t- I talked to somebody from this company a little while back. They, they really are sort of maximizing the most modern approaches to, uh, you know, manufacturing and design. Like they, they really are a, uh, a model. I think this is, this is kind of the point that I was getting at a little bit with the more simplistic, um, you know, kind of approach. If, if you had more simplistic systems and you really were able to apply the, all the you know latest and greatest technologies like you know digital engineering and advanced, you know all the advanced manufacturing techniques and and you were planning for that and their environment definitely has been planning for this they they saw the potential and they were putting a lot of resources into it um, ahead you know ahead of demand uh, then then you can you can have some competition right like the air environment will not be the only provider of of these types of systems so they're they're now that the demand is demonstrated, other companies will be coming online. And so we will get competition. 
but will we get competition for, you know, El Razum and Jasms and, you know, Ham Ramps? No, we probably won't, right? So uh, this is this is definitely what I'd like to see more of, is let's bring all the all the new technologies to bear uh, for a capability that is robust, but not, you know, uh, not exotic um, like we like we like to do. Yeah, I wonder, you know, and and you brought a good, brought up a good point. And I think a lot of times for something complicated like a Elrasm, it's hard to create that competitor. Like the competitor is going to look different, right. right? And it's probably going to use a different like technology stack. And that's actually good and fine. And I think a lot of people expected, you know, at the beginning of Ukraine that, you know, those group one, two, maybe three type UAVs, the smaller ones, wouldn't be very impactful, like Russian countermeasures would be very useful or, you know, effective. And that turned out relatively not to be the case, right? So maybe some of these these uh, loitering munition type things, you know, end up taking on more capabilities or more mission sets than we would have expected them to. Yeah, especially when you look at the, I, I kind of think of the PLA fleet, right? So if you're going after, you know, one of the high-end uh, destroyers with all kinds of you know, anti-air defenses, you you know, you might not be able to use a simplistic weapon against some of those. Some of those do require an Alrazum to get through the defenses. Uh, But there's a lot of other ships that are much less sophisticated. In fact, some of the ships that will probably be used for Taiwan invasion might be uh, more civilian looking kind of ships. Um, And so anyway, I I do, I would like to see more maritime sort of, you know, kind of experimentation on this. And I know, I know the Navy has been doing some, but you know, it, it will be interesting to see the maritime applications of some of these types of systems for, for different types of maritime targets. You know, it's maybe not the, the highest end vessels, but maybe some of the ones, um, you know, in the, in the, in the mid to, to low range that uh, don't have all that self-defense. Last one we'll do U S air force reveals hellfire missile with threefold range and so that's going to get the original, the the last model, the uh, AGM 114R, was about seven miles, eleven kilometers. So I guess if we triple that, we're about twenty miles for for the new Hellfire, uh, which is a uh, pretty substantial when you think about it. Like tripling the range is that's a pretty substantial uh, increase in range there. Um, just going to the next model. So I wonder what what that comes with in terms of cost, though. They didn't really mention. So that's the big question. Well, I don't, yeah, the range is honestly, the range is so short on this one. This one doesn't impress me too much, only because um, I imagine they just extended the, uh, the, the, the tube, the missile tube, and, and put more fuel in there. And, you know, it, it probably increased, uh, you know, increased some of the, they probably had to recalibrate some of the aerodynamics or something. But in general, it, you know, if the seeker and other aspects of the system, which are the predominant, kind of, uh, you know, pieces of the missile that didn't change. This isn't like a huge, uh, a huge, huge boost and going to, you know, going to France seven miles. is not still not, uh, yeah, it, it, I guess it's helpful in some of the theaters, but you know, this is not, uh, not getting after Pacific targets. So <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> oh, that's true. Um, yeah, maybe the, the sea, uh, what is it? The sea reaper right? yeah, or the sea yeah. predator. Um, maybe it'll help there a little bit, but yeah, I guess it's not too much of a deal to put a predator, you know, 10 miles closer to a target. You know, if you lose it, you lose it, but still you'd rather not 
remember though it looked like the u.s lost the predator over um libya i don't know if that was ever confirmed or not mm-hmm. i don't know Anyway, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks, Matt, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.